Thank you, Josh. One of the things that Josh mentioned was about being face-to-face with Jesus. And I, I think in, really in Scripture you could look at a theology of face. And, the whole, and I think we felt the lack of that over the last two years over across the, the nation. The idea of, one, of being in his presence and seeing him face-to-face. Uh, that's going to be a, a day of great joy. We will see him as he is. But the thing that's astonishing is when people look at him face to face and turn their backs on him. And that's what we see in the parable that we uh, just heard read by Josh. I have a question for you. Who has the authority to tell you how to think, to tell you how to act? What voices do you listen to? We've as we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark last week, there was a confrontation with the Jewish leaders over the issue of Jesus' authority. And I'm going to dip back into that because it's very important for today's text. It flows directly from that confrontation. What authority in your life guides how you think, how you live? There are all kinds of things all kinds of voices that are just clamoring for our attention all around us all the time. The manipulations of a Hollywood director in a well-made movie, uh, the the pronouncements of government, uh, science, reason, emotions, my employer, the stock market, uh, culture, uh, media, men's magazines, women's magazines, the, the, the... the many voices that are just crying out, listen to me, listen, I'll tell you what life should be like. I'll tell you what reality looks like. What single voice, what authority sets the guardrails for what you will and will not listen to, puts all other voices into perspective organizes them in your mind and speaks truth into your life for your eternal good? I think that's a hugely important question. What single voice sets the guardrails, puts all the others into perspective, organizes them in your mind and speaks truth into your life for your eternal good? The question of authority is one of the main themes that's been working its way through the gospel of Mark. Mark uses the word authority ten times. It's the reason Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? Because authority is anchored in identity. See, So does Jesus have the authority, based on his identity, to tell you what to believe, how to think, how to live, to tell you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me? I made a list uh, just of some of the claims Jesus has made so far in our study through the Gospel of Mark using the word authority. Here's here's my list. Authority over sickness. Authority to command demonic spirits. Authority to delegate authority. That's when he sends out the disciples and gives them authority over demonic spirits. Authority over the physical world. That's over the wind, the waves, the sea, physical laws like mass, energy, energy gravity, walking on water, 
those kinds of things. Authority to forgive sins. That's the big one. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. Authority over the, over the temple. Excuse me? The temple? It's mine. I have authority over it. I'm the Lord of the temple. Authority over the Sabbath. Not, over, not only is the temple mine, the Sabbath is mine too. I started it. Plus, authority over the Sabbath is authority over worship. Yes, I have authority over that too. Authority over the proper understanding of Scripture. Have you not read? Do you not understand? Authority over the sacrificial system. Excuse me, it points to me, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lewis pointed out last week uh, from Mark chapter 11, verse 16, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. Jesus stopped what the priests were doing, including their money-making ventures. And this was during Passover week. I mean, you think about this. It would be like pushing the stop button on all Amazon during the week before Christmas. That's what this was during Passover week. And in, in effect, Jesus just pushed the button that will take him to the cross. So the question of authority came to a head as we dip back to last chapter, to Mark chapter 11. In verses 27 and 28, the chief priests, the elders, the uh, the scribes confronted him. These are the big guns. They comprise the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish body. These are the leaders. Tell us, they demanded, by what authority you are doing these things and who is the one who gave you the authority to do these things? They're not asking the same question twice. They're two separate questions. Uh, First of all, tell us who you are and where you got your authority. In other words, the first question is actually a personal question. Who are you to do these things? It's the question of innate authority. The second is a public question, the question of official creditation. Who gave you? this authority to do these things because we are the official sanctioning body of Israel, of Judaism. And since we didn't accredit you, who did? What they're trying to do, their goal is to discredit and embarrass Jesus in front of the crowds. Didn't work. Jesus could have responded by saying, I am the Messiah. This is my temple. It's my city. It's my kingdom. It's my planet. It's my universe. You're trespassing. Instead, Jesus points the leaders to the one authority that the people accepted, but that the leaders did not accept and didn't want to talk about. He asked them about the baptism of John. Is it from God or is it from men? And you notice, as Lewis pointed out last week, um, Jesus did not ask about the character of John or even so much about the message or preaching of John, but the one thing that John did that the priests also did. The priests also engaged in ceremonial washings, right? The baptism of John, ritual washings. Why ask about the one thing in the life and ministry of John the Baptist that connected him with the priests? Well, there are a lot of dots being connected here. It's Passover week. It's the lamb of the sacrifice who's Jesus. It's atonement for sins during this week. The the word atonement meant cover. 
It didn't mean remove or cleanse. It meant to cover sin. That's what the Hebrew word meant. But Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated. They covered the sins for that year, and then the next year they had to be repeated over and over and over again. But John says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is entirely the argument of the book of Hebrews. The leaders of the Jewish nation uh, are not seeing, and they're gradually becoming aware of how Jesus is connecting all of these dots. They've been playing checkers. He's playing multidimensional chess. So there, and, and we're going to see that play out in the rest of chapter 12. As a matter of perspective, though, just keep this in mind. God holds his leaders accountable for three basic tasks. Leaders accountable, three basic tasks. Number one, to pursue and teach truth. Number two, to lead self-sacrificially. Number three, to, to do that which is for the eternal good of their flock. And when you hear about leaders and their moral failures today or failures in pastoring today, you will hear about having that they have failed in one of those three areas, if not more. Not once when the Jewish leaders talk about how do they respond to Jesus, not once do these leaders focus on the question of truth, on the question of self-sacrifice, on the question of the eternal good of their flock. Instead, they focus on polls. What do the people say? I mean, they could lose support of the people if they actually said what they thought about John the Baptist. So they're not going to actually say that. But the thing is, if they truly believed that John and Jesus were spreading heresy, how could they possibly keep quiet? They're putting themselves ahead of the people they're supposed to be shepherding. So they have this discussion. We can't tell you. We don't know. And Jesus responds, of course, by saying, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So at this point, the discussion about authority is done. And in fact, Mark chapter 11, verse 33, if you look at that verse, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That is the last time in the gospel of Mark, the last occurrence of the word authority. That's the last one. But the question over authority is done, but Jesus is not done. What he proceeds to do in our text today is he exposes the leaders as having no authority. He exposes them in this parable in verses 1 through 9. And, and there's, after hearing what Jesus says, there's nobody who hears this parable who, you know, sometimes with the parables of Jesus, people said, what do you mean? Or what does he mean? Not this time. Everybody got exactly what Jesus meant. Jesus was claiming that the Romans are not the enemy. It's the Jewish leaders who are the enemy. Their claim to authority is counterfeit. And, Jesus, and God is going to judge them. And at the end of his parable, the leaders are not, repeat, not happy campers. Verse 1, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, and dug a vat under the wine press, and built a tower. So that's the setting, that's the picture, and everybody who heard that had heard this scripture read in the synagogue all of their lives, because Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 5. And I'm going to ask you to hold your place here and turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 5, and, and, and I'm going to uh, wait for a moment while you get there, and I'm going to read a couple of verses, and then I'm going to highlight several verses in this entire pa passage. Isaiah chapter 5, in verses 1 and 2. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, the song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. Who's the beloved? It's God. God's the beloved. It's his vineyard. He dug it all around and removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So here, here are the terms that, that Jesus uses that are in Isaiah, that, you know, beloved, uh, vineyard, uh, vine grower, dug, uh, the, the digging of it, the planting, the tower, wine, all of that appears in the Gospel of Mark. Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Now, if you'll turn, hold your place here and turn back in Isaiah to chapter 1, listen to what you'll, read, what you'll read in verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from Him. And then down in verse 11, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? See, this, what's this, this is what's going on here. In Passover week, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Now turn back to chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, Jesus picks out the terms that introduce what is the conclusion of this entire section of the book of Isaiah, because in chapter 6, Isaiah himself receives his call from God in the year that King Uzziah died. But that climaxes the section in chapter 5. Look at verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Look at verse 8. Woe to those who add house to house. Verse 11. Woe to those. Verse 13. My people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Verse 24, they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. That's why they are coming under judgment. And Jesus speaks using the analogy of Isaiah, and he takes that and builds a parable on top of it. They, uh, Jesus is the one 
in Isaiah, God tells Israel, I've been sending you the prophets. I've been sending you the prophets. You have been rejecting them. You've rejected my word. Judgment is coming. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, judgment is coming. That's in Isaiah. Here, here with Jesus, God has sent you his last prophet, John. The people accepted John's authority. You did not. And now God is actually sending the son. So Jesus uses Isaiah's analogy and he builds this parable on it. And the parable is the spiritual history of Israel. And he uses the common practice of absentee landowners. We would, they would rent out their fields for about 25% of the proceeds. But in this case, the longer the landowner is absent, the less real he seems the less relevant his word seems. And those in charge begin to live as if his absence were permanent and this vineyard is their own. And they build their own kingdom and they are the ones who are in authority and anybody who enters into the vineyard is subject to them. Now, that's where he's headed. Verse 2, at harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. So, no fruit, no proceeds. In fact, they defy the authority of the landowner. So, do we read, does he say, and the owner destroyed them? No. Verse 4. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And the owner destroyed them. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that's not, that's not there yet. He didn't destroy them, not yet. Verse 5, and he sent another, and that one they killed, and the owner then destroyed them. No, that's not what it says, not yet. And so with many others, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the twelfth, the seventeenth, the twentieth, beating some, killing others, and the owner destroyed them. No, not yet. By the way, the author of Hebrews describes the prophets this way in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, a description of the prophets. Ready? They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Tradition has it that that was Isaiah. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Why? Because the leaders rejected them. The leaders of Israel do not have a good track record when it comes to God's messengers and responding to him. Now, so far, this parable has been pretty uncomfortable for the Jewish leaders. They are squirming, and they can't say, well, yeah, but we would have gotten it right. We, we, would have, we would have been on the right side of spiritual history. Listen to Jesus' rebuke. In Matthew 23, I'm looking at another gospel here, but listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 29 to 33. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets, right? The tombs of the prophets. They build tombs for them and adorn the monuments of the righteous. So they build the tombs, they decorate them, and they say, and you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. 
So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And in the Hebrew idiom, the idea of sons of means you are characterized by the same traits as those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your, of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape hell? So if they can't say, well, we would have gotten it right, Jesus said, no, you wouldn't. And by the way, later, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, highlighted this. Now get this. He's on trial before these same men, the Sanhedrin. Listen to Stephen's words from Acts 7. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you kind of wonder exactly who's on trial here. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Those whose, uh, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have, who have received the law is ordained by angels and yet do not keep it. Hey, I would have been on the right side of this if I'd lived then. No. And you live now and you still won't be. Unfortunately, if I have a high opinion of myself, that will not protect me from my own sin. What did the Sanhedrin do? They killed Stephen. Exactly fulfilling Stephen's words. In Jesus' parable, the owner, God, has acted with grace and has chosen over and over again not to destroy them. And now the climax, sending the son to make his entrance into the vineyard. And I would suggest to you that the primarily in mind here is not the tri is not the incarnation, but the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which had just happened that week. Verse six, he had one more to send. Not just the son, but the beloved son. In Isaiah five, the word beloved refers to God. Here the son identifies himself as the beloved. It's a not-so-subtle title, identifying the son as God. This is exactly what the father has already said of Jesus, by the way, at, at his baptism, at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son. It all fits together. So he sends his son, and he says, they will respect my son. And here's where the parable is even more jarring. No earthly landowner would be this patient with them, but God is. No earthly father would send his son, but God does. Jesus describes the vineyard owner in human terms to, to complete the story, not because God is up in heaven wringing his hands over what's about to happen to Jesus. Jesus is already describing what is going to happen to him. He's already told us that. But the point is that the landowner is so patient and so gracious that he sends his son just on the possibility of a perhaps. That's how loving he is. That's how patient he is. How much more does God love us? How much more is God patient with us? I mean, we all know John 3.16. We've heard it many times. It's well known. You know why? Because it should be well known. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave 
Send his son to die on the mission field that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then right after that, God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. So catch the unfolding drama of this parable so far. Is there any question who's the, who the landowner is? No, it's God. Any question who the servants are that have been sent by the owner? Who are the servants? The prophets, including John the Baptist, the last one. Jesus has just connected John's authority with his own authority. Any question who the vine growers are? No, the religious leaders of the day. Any question who the son is? You can answer. Huh? Who's the son? Thank you. Remember, whenever you're in church, when you ask a question, it's always Jesus. That's always the answer, right? Also, is there any question about what Jesus is claiming for himself as the son? No. Remember, he's eyeball to eyeball with these vine growers, these religious authorities. And he's telling them, I'm the beloved son. I own the vineyard. It's mine. But those vine growers, verse 7, say to one another, this is the heir. Let us come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So the most violent act is committed against the most important person. And their logic is crazy. This is Paul Paul's point in Romans 1, you can never make logical sense of the irrationality of sin. When, you, when I sin, you know what I'm doing? And, and I know this, I suppress, I don't, follow what I, I don't follow my mind, I suppress my mind. When I sin, I am saying no to sovereignty. I'm saying no to omniscience. I'm saying no to grace and love when I sin. And yet we do that. The vine growers are self-deceived, and, and their sin is, is going to turn and eat them alive. They're not committing homicide, they're committing deicide, the killing of God, God murder. Why do they do this? Because they've got a low view of their master's authority, and they've got a high view of their own authority. They become successful, they become comfortable with the fruits of uh, their vineyard, and uh, any kind of accountability for them threatened their comfort, their status, their profit. And I have to say, in an important way, I think we're looking in a mirror here. From the Garden of Eden on, we want to own our destiny, our vineyard. We want to control our own vineyard. In the words of Genesis 3, hey, Satan said, you'll be like God. More accurately, he would have, should have said, you'll be like me. But he said, you'll be like God. As one person put it, we'd rather be like God then obey God. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, first, he will come and destroy the vine growers. There's no elaborate description here, just that's it. And second, he will give the vineyard to others. Question, who are the others? As it turns out, the leaders of the Christian church. That is the argument of, you can, will not go there, but re read Ephesians 2 and 3. 
And what's interesting is that God holds all leaders accountable, <laughs> whether in the temple or in the church. Now, just absorb the impact of what Jesus is saying so far. If you're one of the Jewish leaders, if you're if you are listening to Jesus's words, his parable here. Excuse me, Jesus. Are, are you saying that what happened to the first temple will happen to this second temple? That God is done sending prophets to us? And, and that God is going to judge us for, first of all, how we manipulated Scripture to put and keep ourselves into authority and about God's judgment coming upon us for our response to John the Baptist and now for our response to your claims that you were God the Son? That's what you're saying? Right? Exactly. That is precisely what he's saying. But he's not done. There's still more. At this point, Jesus moves away from this parable that he's built on Isaiah's analogy in Isaiah 5. He moves away from that to another passage. And you have to get this. And I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 118. And as you are turning to Psalm 118... I'm going to turn there too. As you're turning to Psalm 118, a little, a little background. Psalms 113 through 18, and you can just kind of mark that. 113 to 118 are the Hallel Psalms, the praise Psalms. The Psalms that were sung by the people during the worship in the temple Passover week, okay? These are the psalms sung by the temple, people in the temple during Passover. In other words, this is what's going on right now around Jesus. These are the psalms that people sing intermittently during this week. And the very last of these psalms is Psalm 118. And the very last of Psalm 118 has these words. Look with me at verse 19. Psalm 118, verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. It's not a chorus to sing before a meal. You can do that, but this is about the Day of Atonement. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Oh Lord, do save, we beseech you. Oh Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity, the blessing. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Have you heard that already during Passover week? Yes, when Jesus was entering Jerusalem. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice. This is the Passover sacrifice. The lamb. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And if the timing is right, if I understand the timing of all this, this is what was being sung while the, while the lamb of God was being nailed to the cross. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
His loving kindness, which is the Old Testament word for grace, His loving kindness is everlasting. Jesus is saying the Son will be killed, but will become the chief cornerstone, the center around which the whole building will be created. Verse 10, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118, uh, citation. And I want you to notice that verse 10 begins with Jesus' question, have you not read this? But how can Jesus, the son, become the chief cornerstone if he's killed? Well, only one way. The son will be raised from the dead. And as we know, he will ascend to the Father, send the Spirit, and the church will be born. And the church will become the new temple of God. I don't believe the church displaces Israel in God's plan, but it is the new temple of God. Several passages make that case. In Ephesians chapter 2, listen to verses 19 through 22. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Wow. It all makes sense. In verse 12, we see the reaction. They were seeking to seize him. This is what they wanted to do. Yet they feared the people, just as with the authority of John the Baptist, the polls control their public response. Good politicians here. For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Well, actually, it was about them, but it was more about the son. And so they left him and went away. I'm going to read into that very frustrated. <laughs> and the next verses describe plan B, where they send various groups to match wits with Jesus and discredit him. First, the scribes and chief priests, then the Pharisees and Herodians, and then the Sadducees, and it just doesn't turn out well for them. In a war of wits with Jesus, the nitwits lose every time. Near the end of the Passover week, Pilate and Jesus will discuss the issue of authority. I'm going to read from the Gospel of John, verse 19, chapter 19. Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me, respond to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And now Jesus does speak about this issue, authority. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And after the death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus will say this to all the disciples, including you and me. All authority has been given me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Make disciples. Who are disciples? 
People who confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And then deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Well, that's the passage. It's about, it, I think you can detect, there's, <laughs> this passage is about so many things. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, it's about authority, it's about leadership, about sin, about grace, about judgment, about the unfolding drama of redemption through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son. There's just a lot here. In Isaiah 1 through 5, chapters 1 through 5, Jerusalem and Judah turned their backs on the Lord. They kept all the worship traditions and the observances, the feasts and the sacrifices, thinking, now get this, thinking that they were in compliance. But they bore no fruit. They remained under God's judgment. And by the way, who announced that judgment? The prophets, like Isaiah, whom the owner of the vineyard kept sending. What happened? The first temple was destroyed. In Mark chapters 11 and 12, the religious leaders in Jerusalem and in Judah turned their backs on the Lord. They kept all the worship traditions and observances and feasts and sacrifices, thinking that they were in compliance. But they bore no fruit, and they were under God's judgment. Who announced that judgment? The last prophet, John. And then... The sun came. What happened? The second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The scribes and the Pharisees as groups functionally ceased to exist. The Sadducees became extinct. The Herodians became extinct. You know, the Father wants to give grace. That's what he's like. That's what his character is. But they don't want grace. They want Justice based upon their own perception of their good works and being in compliance. That is really a horrible trade-off. I've told you this many times, but it's worth repeating. Justice is getting what I deserve. I don't want justice. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. That is forgiveness, a new identity, adoption as children into God's family, an inheritance, an eternal home, peace, joy, and love. So Isaiah, that's the message there. Mark 11 and 12, that's the message there. Here we are today, God's temple, God's people, the church. Are we keeping our worship traditions thinking that we are in compliance? Are we bearing fruit? Because one day the Son will return. Will He be pleased with us as a church? But the question of authority is also an individual question. Is He pleased with me? With you? With your life? With your choices? Is your goal in life not to sin too much in order to remain in compliance? Or is your goal to be holy? For I am holy. We've said many times before, the only person who sets limits on how holy you can become is yourself. God won't. Does Jesus have the authority to tell you what to do, what to believe, how to live, to tell you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me? If you claim to follow Jesus but ignore his authority over you, you may think you're in compliance. 
but need to check your heart. Because if it's true that Jesus is Lord, that changes everything. And all other voices clamoring for attention recede into insignificance. So if you're, I'm going to close by saying this. If you're here today and you're not a, 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 a disciple of Jesus, you haven't committed your life to him, you, you are not yet a Christian, and, and I'm saying this to those who may be visiting, to those who are here who've been attending, but you, you're not a believer yet, you're interested, maybe you're, you're, you're curious, uh, you want to find out more about Jesus because the, of his depth of thought and, and makes you wonder, okay, is this man more than a man? I am so glad you're here. And I am also want to talk to, talk to our, our, our students here because I grew up in a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, and I became a Christian at the age of 17 in college, college freshman. So just because you grew up with the gospel, right, doesn't mean that you have committed yourself to Jesus because I was living in compliance. So this is really for all of us to think about here. And, and I love, we just love our students, and, and we just want them to follow Jesus. All of us, I, I, I'm so glad you're here, and I want you to know this. All of us who claim to be Christians sitting around you, everybody here who claims to be a Christian sitting around you, is a flawed person. We are all flawed. We are sinners saved by grace. But Jesus offers more than just justice and mercy. He's the source of that grace. He's the authority. By grace are you saved through faith. And that, even that, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Should say, I did it my way. On my own authority. On my own terms. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that is by the grace of God. Based upon the authority of the Son who loved you so much he'd rather die than live without you. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. There's so much in this parable and the verses surrounding it. Uh, Lord, we'll never plumb the depths of it, but we thank you for um, the ability to see by your Spirit ourselves in the mirror of your word. And Father, I pray that we would live more than just in compliance but we would live in deep commitment to following Jesus. For we pray this in his name. Amen.